1: celebration of Jesus triumphal entry into Jerusalem we call it Palm Sunday because the people are laying down their cloaks on the road. others are also spreading branches that they had cut and John again says these are these are palm branches And verse 9 says, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, just a Hebrew term that means save. What is
0: Palm Sunday? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you the reason the church celebrates Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the celebration of Jesus' triumphal entrance into the city of Jerusalem. People would lay down their branches and shout, Hosanna, which means to save. Pastor Gary explains that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus saves, and He is worthy of all celebrations. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 11, for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: Let's take our Bibles now and go to Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. Take your Bibles there as we continue in our study through the Gospel of Mark. The picture of the ox, uh, our graphic for the Gospel of Mark, because Jesus is portrayed as the servant. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 11, where we left off uh, last time. So uh, as we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, we're at a place here where Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Uh, This is going to be the final week of his life before he is crucified and rises again. So uh, we're going to slow it way down because the first 10 chapters of Mark cover three years. But from chapters 11 through the end of the book, chapter 16 covers one week. So things really slow down here at this point as we begin chapter 11. And Jesus is making his journey from the region of the Galilee, which was up north, uh, down to Jerusalem. But because Jerusalem is a higher elevation and it's considered a, a holy location with the temple, that even though Jesus was going from north to south, no matter where you're coming to Jerusalem from, you always say, I'm going up to Jerusalem because it's going up to a, a high and a holy place, although it is a higher elevation. At the end of chapter 10, we see Jesus passing through Jericho. So he would have followed basically the Jordan River down the Sea of Galilee. And then he would have uh, turned up uh, north from Jericho, which is actually going east to west. The climb from Jericho to Jerusalem, quite a bit. At the end of chapter 10, we see that he's healing a blind man in Jericho. So that's how we know where he was. In verse 46, it says that he came to Jericho. And then at chapter 11, verse 1, it says that they approached Jerusalem. And it is quite an ascent. Jericho is located about a 1,000 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is about 2,600 feet above sea level. So this is a climb of about 3,600 feet, a distance of about 20 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. So not a, uh, a slight hike. This is a rather strenuous one. And Jesus is approaching now Jerusalem for what will be the last week of his life As Mark will record in his gospel. We refer to this week between Palm Sunday and Easter as uh, the Passion Week. This is the week when Jesus will come into Jerusalem. He will spend a few days teaching in the temple court areas. And then by the end of the week, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely charged. He's going to be crucified. And then by Sunday, he rises from the dead and uh, thus the hope of the church that we serve a resurrected Lord. We serve a Lord who is alive and well and coming again. He ascends into heaven 40 days after he rises from the dead, but the Bible teaches us, and he's going to come again for us. But as we take a look at this last uh, week of his life, from chapters 11 to 16, we'll see how far we get. But at chapter 11, verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to uh, Bethphage, Bethphage, And Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it, and will send it back here Shortly, So as he comes up to the Mount of Olives from Jericho, he approaches the Mount of Olives. And just on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives are two ancient villages, one called Bethphage or Bethphage and one called Bethany. Now, uh, Bethphage in the Hebrew translates house of figs or house of unripe figs. Uh, Beth is always the word in Hebrew that means house of. And uh, so this is probably a, a village known for harvesting figs, and then a very villi- a close a village very close by is, is this other village called bethany now in john 's gospel, John tells us in John uh, chapter eleven verse eighteen that Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. So, not a far distance from Jerusalem, and Bethany is also the location of Jesus' close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother, that same Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead, they live here in Bethany. Bethany translates in Hebrew, now there's a variation of interpretation, Bethany in Hebrew can translate house of dates versus house of figs, but that definition has been disputed even more recently. And it is believed that probably a better translation of Bethany is from two words: Beit, meaning house, and Ani in Hebrew, meaning poor. Now, when I was in Israel last week, I asked uh, a Jewish guy with us, "What what do you think the definition of Bethany is?" Because I had always read it was house of dates, and then only recently has it been really referred to as house for the poor, or the poorhouse. You heard that expression, like, I'm going to end up in a poorhouse? Well, it is believed that Bethany actually was a place where they had houses for the poor. And anyway, our Hebrew friend said, well, Ani in Hebrew translates poor, so a better definition would be house of the poor. Even in uh, Aramaic, which is what Jesus would have spoken, uh, Anya translates poor. Uh, or impoverished, and so it seems like that Bethany was a location where uh, the poorest people lived, that uh, they would have gone there to live if they didn't have any other place to go, among others who lived there, but this may have been a village known for its uh, poor residents. That will also play into a story later in the Gospel of Mark uh, when there's a scene in Bethany and Jesus is anointed with oil, and remember Judas speaks up and says this could have been given to the poor. That happens in Bethany, which makes sense then that they would have been arguing, man, we're living among poor people, and this This special perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. So we'll talk about that when we get to it. But but whatever, it's disputable what Bethany really translates in Hebrew. But it seems to be that a better translation would be house of the poor. And uh, these two villages in close proximity, just as he crests the Mount of Olives. Now, what's going to happen here is this is going to be the scene of what we call today Palm Sunday, Because Jesus gives instructions to two of his disciples, I want you to go to the next village, and I want you to find a colt there, which is not just a young horse, but also a word for a young donkey, one that had never been ridden, and I want you to bring it to me, And, uh, and then he says to his disciples, if anybody asks you, what are you doing, just tell them, the Lord needs it. Now, this is, this is I think, kind of funny because when you look at this text here, and we all get, uh, you know, engrossed in the whole Palm Sunday story, which is a wonderful story and a wonderful thing to get engrossed in, but I think we miss here the awkwardness of this moment that two disciples have to go and basically steal somebody's donkey. And when they ask you, what in the world are you doing? You're just supposed to say, well, the Lord needs it. Let me translate this. This would be as if today Jesus said to you, and I want you to go hotwire somebody's Ford F-150, okay? (laughs) Because I need a truck today, and I want you to just hotwire the thing. And if people ask you, what are you doing? You just say, well, Jesus needs it. So try to imagine yourself. I mean, so these two disciples are going like, what are we supposed to do? Just when they ask, what are you doing? Just say, Jesus needs it. Let's see how this works. And they and they do exactly as Jesus says here, verse 4. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? Okay, just as Jesus predicted. What are you doing? You're You're stealing my car, okay? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So either at that moment, the Lord just ministers to these people like, it's okay, let it go. Or maybe they are also followers of Christ. And when they invoke the name of Jesus, the people who own the cult are eager to just help and whatever the cause is. And sure, if Jesus needs it, go ahead. We don't know the background of it. All we know is this very awkward moment is resolved in this wonderful way because Jesus had predicted in advance that all these things would happen the way that they did, and they did. So verse 7 says, when they brought the colt to Jesus, uh, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Verse 8, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now, uh, John's gospel in John 12, 13 actually says palm branches, and they would have probably been palms from, this is a picture of a date palm. And, and they grow all over Israel. In fact, we took this picture last week, and you can see the cluster of dates that are hanging there from the palm tree. And so they would have cut off these branches, these, these palm branches, palm fronds, which sounds like a couple of German guys, don't they? Brent Palm and Hans here, and Franz, uh, Palm, Hans, and Franz. Uh, and so they cut off the palm fronds and they bring them. And so John's gospel specifically says they were they were palm branches, and thus that's how we get the name for our celebration of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday because the people are laying down their cloaks on the road. Others are also spreading branches that they had cut. And John again says these are these are palm branches. And verse 9 says, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, just a Hebrew term that means save. Save. And they are quoting from Psalm 118. Now let me read a little bit from Psalm 118, because Psalm 118, this portion here, is a messianic passage. The people are ascribing honor to Jesus as the Messiah. This is both wonderful and tragic at the same time. Why? Because while they are they are crying out with shouts of, save us, you are Messiah, and they're quoting Psalm 118, in a few short days, the same crowd is going to be crying, crucify him. How can you go from cheers to jeers in just a matter of a few short days? The answer is because Jesus did not do for them what they thought he should do. See, the expectations of the people were that Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Roman government. We're tired of the oppressive Romans. We're tired of our taxes. We're tired of the emperor. We want to live under a theocracy again with Messiah who is supreme and ruling over the earth. And that's what they wanted right then. Jesus will come and do that, but that's his second coming, not his first coming. And when he didn't perform exactly as they had hoped and expected by overthrowing the Roman government and being our king. In fact, in John's gospel, it says that they tried to make him king by force. But he withdrew to a solitary place. The people were always looking to make Jesus king, but they didn't understand that his ultimate purpose for his first coming was the redemption for the world by dying on a cross for the sins of mankind. And he's going to come gentle and mild riding on a donkey here. And when he doesn't do as they would hope that he would do... In a few short days, they're going to demand that he would be crucified. It's not turning out to be the kind of king we had wanted. No, he came to be a king of a greater kingdom than what you can possibly imagine. And so they're quoting from Psalm 118, uh, in verse twenty two it says this "The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us that 's Hosanna, O Lord, grant us success." Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand. Join in the in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So they are quoting Psalm 118 because they are seeing Jesus as our Messiah, although their view of Messiah is a little bit different from what Jesus ultimate purpose and mission was for his first coming. But for the moment here, they are hailing him as Messiah. And they're quoting from Psalm 118, that he is the one who has come to save us. Now, there's a sharp contrast here of events, because Jesus in his first coming will ride into Jerusalem here on the back of a donkey, and he comes as very meek and mild. When Jesus comes again, it will not be meek and mild, Jesus. It will be Jesus who is just and true, who will rule and reign. First time Jesus comes, it's Father God. Second time Jesus comes, it's the Godfather. Do you know what I'm saying to you? And Revelation 19, you don't, need to, you don't need to turn there, but listen to the difference, because in the second coming, Jesus rides not on a donkey, but on a white horse. And when he comes again, it will be with justice to rule and to reign. In Revelation 19, 11, I saw... Heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True with justice he judges and makes war his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Listen, folks, in His second coming, He comes very majestically, very powerfully. He will come to judge and to rule. But His first coming, meek and mild Jesus, who comes to die for the sins of the world. And there is a great window of opportunity between His first and second coming for every human heart to get right with God. If you're here tonight and you're not in right relationship with Him, it's not too late. Now is the day of salvation. And I implore you to get your life right with him, because the second time he comes, it will not be riding on a donkey, it will be riding on a horse. And no man knows the day nor the hour when he will come. And we have to be ready for his second coming. And so as he comes into Jerusalem on this occasion, he's coming to die for the sins of the world. And he enters Jerusalem, verse 11 Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he looks around. We're going to see in the next scene here that he's going to come back and he's going to overturn the, the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who are buying and selling things. And he sees this, no doubt, when he comes in. He sees this. He surveys it. He assesses everything, but he's not rash. Jesus is not impulsive. He's not rash about things. He takes it all in. He observes it. He looks at it. But then he's going to go back to Bethany within about a two-mile little walk. And he's going to stay at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then the next day, he's going to come back and a little fire in his eyes. And this is what it says in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. By the way, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus uses his power uh, to destroy. And uh, he is going to uh, cause this, by what he says to this tree, it's going to wither, it's going to end up dying, uh, and so this is an interesting scene here. He comes to this tree because it has leaves, the text tells us, but it has no fruit. And yet then it adds, but it wasn't the season for fruit. So then why would Jesus get upset with it? You know, was he, he was hungry. Was he just, you know, low blood sugar? Is that what's going on here? And it doesn't have any figs. And so he's just, all right, cursing his tree. No, here's what the deal is. Even though it wasn't the right season for figs, yet this tree had leaves. And normally when a fig tree had leaves, it also had figs. So the issue was here that this tree was somewhat of a hypocrite because it was giving the appearance that it had fruit by virtue of its leaves, but it didn't actually have the fruit that went with the leaves. This is going to end up being a symbol for the nation of Israel. Because in essence, the nation looks all green, looks all religious, but doesn't have any fruit to show because it doesn't believe in Jesus as Messiah. So what Jesus is doing here is he's cursing the tree. In essence, what he's saying is that I live among a people who don't believe in me and accept me and receive me. And we'll tie this in later in the text here. And, but there's this nation here that pretends to be very religious, you know, very green here, but has no fruit. Because it doesn't believe in me. So it's more than just he's hungry and he's, and he's grouchy here. That's not what the scene is. This is symbolic of something bigger than just figs and breakfast. Okay, And so he curses the tree here. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers "...and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations?" He's quoting from Isaiah. "...but you have made it a den of robbers." He's quoting from Jeremiah. "...and the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching." When evening came, they went out of the city. So the scene is Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. Uh, This is that that week of Passover. So typically what would happen here is come into Jerusalem and at night he'd find lodging, either in Bethany or later when it comes to his betrayal. And he's going to find lodging in the Mount of Olives itself at Gethsemane in a, a place where they would press olives. Uh, and, and then during the daytime, he'd go and he would teach in the temple courts. This is very typical of any rabbi. In the evening, they would retreat and retire. And in the daytime, he would come to the temple area and he would teach. As he comes into the temple area this morning, he sees all of this buying and selling going on and the money changers. Now, why is he all upset? Is he, would Jesus be upset with a bookstore and a cafe in a church today because it's buying and selling? No. Here's what's going on here. There's a whole different motivation here. There are two high priests at this particular time, the Bible tells us. It's Caiaphas and Annas. Now, Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And Annas is really the rightful high priest that the Jews recognize, but when the Roman Empire comes and overtakes Israel, they want to appoint their own high priest that they can deal with as kind of an intermediary between the Jewish people and the Romans. They appoint a Jew by the name of Caiaphas, he's the son-in-law of Annas. And the Bible says that actually they kind of co-reigned at the same time because the Romans saw Caiaphas as the legitimate high priest. The people saw Annas as the legitimate high priest. And between them, they were running a bazaar. It was a bazaar, bazaar. And the bazaar was this that they turned the temple court area into a, a place of opportunity to gouge the people for the sake of lining their own pockets financially. And what would happen is, if you came from a distant area to Jerusalem for the time of the feast, for any of the major feasts, you would have to first exchange your coinage for the temple coins, Because you would come as part of the Roman Empire with either Greek or Roman coins that would bear the the image of an emperor or a person or a figure or a god or a goddess on your coin. Well, that's considered money that is idolatrous. You have the image of Caesar on that coin. So that's no good here at the temple. So you need to exchange your heathen money for better money. And when they would do that, the money changers would then rip you off. You brought five bucks to get exchanged. Uh, You'd only get back two bucks worth of the temple money. So they would profit that way. Then you'd have to take your temple money and go buy a lamb. Because if you're coming from another distant region, you don't want to be dragging lamb chops all the way to Jerusalem. So you're just going to show up there and you're going to buy a lamb there in Jerusalem. Well, now a lamb that you might have otherwise bought where you live... It's going to be like four or five times the price in Jerusalem.
0: Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On the Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10 and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 1145 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the Book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection.
1: That you got no place to go, but still, you know.